Good morning. It's a joy to be back. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. And while you turn there, I'd like to suggest to you that perhaps gossip is the one sin we don't like to talk about. Yes, we are not moving forward. I thought Pastor Daniel did an excellent job with uh, verses 11 through 12 two weeks ago. If you have not heard that, I commend it to you. He spent much of his time dealing with the logic of the text, a necessary ingredient. But consequently, I think, and as I spoke with him, he agreed, there's a lot of meat left on the bone. And given how practical, um, how serious this issue is, I thought it was worthy of another week to consider exactly what is this. James makes the stakes high. He insists that when we speak evil, whatever that means, we're condemning the law and taking on the role of God himself. That, that, that's what he says. So I would invite you to read with me these two verses in James 4. We'll have a word of prayer. We actually will this time, Dave. And then we'll begin. He, he caught that of the last time I preached three weeks ago, I said we're going to pray, and we never did. And so I, I appreciate the exhortations and encouragement of the body. So we will do so this morning, God willing. James 4, 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? to judge your neighbor. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to see um, what it is you are prohibiting here, that we would see the, the full extent of the evil of speaking in this way against each other, the harm it might cause, the arrogance and pride it exhibits. Lord, I pray that we would not be thinking of this primarily in relationship to others, but to ourselves, that you would show us the ways in which we do this, that we might not speak evil of any of the brothers, but that our words might be edifying, good and right and pleasing to you. Help us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. You will probably recognize in my first point Pastor Daniel's message from two weeks ago. I'll begin by trying to summarize what he covered. I think it's essential to understand the logic. And Daniel rightly pointed out that James's logic is not immediately intuitive. If you became convicted that you said something you shouldn't say judgmentally against another, I doubt you would immediately conclude, I have become a judge of the law and I have usurped the role of God. And so understanding that logic is critical and I'll start there because I think that same understanding is critical for us this morning. The text is pretty straightforward. There is a prohibition. Don't do this. And then James gives reason, warrant, argument for why he gives that command. The command, the prohibition, do not speak evil against one another. And that phrase, speak evil, may even be a direct lifting of Numbers 12.8 where Aaron and Miriam grumbled against Moses because he had taken the Cushite wife. And the Lord rebuking them said, why were you not afraid to speak evil, speak against my servant Moses? So that's the command. And then he gives implications. It's as if to say, don't do this. Do you not understand that when you do this, you also do something else? In doing so, you are speaking evil against the law. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, either one judging or simply speaking evil of, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. You're doing both. Whether you're speaking evil of a brother or judging a brother, you're both speaking evil of and judging the law. And, and the rationale Pastor Daniel gave, and I think is right, is this. James is not prohibiting all forms of judgments. If he was, he condemns himself. He has rendered judgments in this book. 
He has called his readers adulteresses. He has called them to repentance. He would also be contradicting his older half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who told us to judge with righteous judgment. That the law instructs us in times and places to give judgments. If you're a parent, you are constantly doing this. Your children come to you. I had it first. Tell them they want your verdict. So it is not a strict prohibition of judgments, but rather a prohibition of judgments outside of matters that Scripture speaks to, matters of conscience, matters of preference. Judging someone when the law doesn't. And the logic is when we condemn someone, when we think how could they do such and such, how could they own such a nice car, for instance, well, if God's law doesn't condemn them, but you judge they deserve to be condemned, then clearly this is not a good and righteous law. It has got some shortcomings, and I will make up for what it lacks, and I'll fill in the gaps, and, and I'm implicitly condemning the insufficiency of the law. Moreover, I'm condemning the insufficiency of the law giver. It's as if to say, when we render judgments on our preferences and opinions, it's such a pity God wasn't righteous enough to condemn this, so I guess I'll have to do it. And that sounds pompous, and we laugh. And James insists that is exactly what we are doing when we judge our brother against, outside of, contrary to what God's law says. I want to suggest to you, and here's sort of Pastor Daniel's summary statement, if we judge a brother when the law does not, then we condemn the law as inadequate to deal rightly with our brother. Amen, hallelujah, I think it's absolutely true. And in talking to Pastor Daniel this week, um, he and I agree, I think there's also other ways you can be doing this. So I wanna suggest some additional implications in this passage. The first, there is another way of judging contrary to the law. So in one sense, you can judge contrary to the law when you condemn as sin or evil something the law does not condemn as sin or evil. That, that makes sense. Be like a police officer arresting you for what was not a crime. There's another way you can judge contrary to the law. And here, here's your blank. If we judge our brother contrary to the law's prescription, then we condemn the law as inadequate and usurp the role of God. So last week, or two weeks ago, Pastor Daniel considered when we condemn contrary to what the law condemns. God doesn't call that sin, but you do. And what I'm saying here is we, there can be cases when we're dealing with things the law does call sin. And the law tells us how to deal with it. The law tells us what to do. And we do not act as those under authority and under law, but we make our own rules, we handle it our own way, we are just as lawless, we have just as much cast off God's law, we're just as much indicting God's way of dealing with things because we've got a better way. We've got a more righteous way. So I wanna consider some of the ways we can do this. Keep your thumb here and turn to Leviticus 19. Turn to Leviticus 19. James has been referencing Leviticus 19 and the second greatest commandment found therein throughout the entire book. He referred to it as the perfect law, the kingly law, the law of liberty. He warns us in chapter two to so live and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And the second greatest commandment, according to our Lord and Savior is not found in the Decalogue. It's found in Leviticus 19. And this commandment against speaking against, speaking evil of, is found in the same context. Pastor Daniel pointed this out last week, but I want to look at it right now. Leviticus 19, 15. You shall do no injustice in your court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So let's clear it up right there. There are definitely judgments of our neighbor that the law would call for and make appropriate. 
When Jesus says, judge not, he goes on to say, in effect, do not judge hypocritically. Do not judge by standards. You don't want to apply it to you. Get the log out of your own eye. Then you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not a strict prohibition of judging. It's a prohibition against hypocritical judging. So the answer isn't, we won't judge. Of course we will. You, you won't be able to help it. The, problem, the question is, will we do it according to God's standard and according to his prescription? You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, stay here. Look at this. Understand what Moses and God behind Moses puts in contrast to each other. Do not gossip. Do not slander. Do not bear a grudge. Do not take revenge. Go talk to him. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law says. I'm going to say that again. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Don't bear a grudge and get embittered. Don't take revenge. Go talk to him and love your neighbor as yourself. Turn to Matthew 18. King Jesus, who finds the center of his moral ethic in Leviticus 19, gives commands to his disciples exactly in keeping with this. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Do you see the absolute consistency of Leviticus 19? Don't gossip, don't slander, don't get mad, don't bear a grudge. Go talk to him, love your neighbors yourself. Jesus, go talk to him, don't tell other people. So the first way that we can lawlessly speak evil, the first way that we can make ourselves above the law and a law unto ourselves is by speaking to another instead of your brother. Understand, we can be dealing with black and white, clear-cut, concrete sin. You can see somebody shoplift right in front of you. No question about it. You don't go talk to them, but you share a prayer concern. You are not acting as one under the law. You're, you're, you're a rogue element. Yes, the law calls that sin. Yes, the law has something to say about it. And you act as a law unto yourself. And in doing so, implicitly condemn God's law as insufficient. You have a better way. You have a more righteous way. And by implication, you condemn the law giver when speaking to another instead of your brother. This also gives another guard as well. If when we're dealing with issues we think are sin, we have to go first to the person who did it, we have to be prepared to justify it biblically. Many of us hold convictions that we think are biblical that if we were forced to defend them would potentially, quite likely, come up short. I remember thinking two weeks ago when Pastor Daniel was teaching when he talked about opinions, most people are sloppily think their opinions are biblical. Of course the Bible says you can't buy $1,000 worth of video games. It's only when someone says, really, where does it say that? <laughs> and so by forcing you to go talk to your neighbor first, it's also forcing you to make sure you're actually being biblical. And you say, hey man, I saw what you did. Here's what God's word says. I don't think they line up. So that's the first way that we condemn the law and usurp God's role when you speak to another instead of your brother. Okay? Second, by repeating a matter that has been resolved. By repeating a matter that has been resolved. Here would be when, when sin has been dealt with, when somebody has confessed and repented 
We want to cover people's shame. We want to, the Lord covers, that's how David speaks of it in Psalm 32, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, he says, after Nathan comes and confronts him. And so I can repeat a matter. Did you know that four years ago, so-and-so got a DUI? Just thought you should know. And the Bible condemns this. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but who repeats a matter separates close friends. So understand this. We're dealing with, I'm trying to deal with this morning, black and white sin issues that the Bible speaks to clearly, clearly defines. We're not dealing with issues of preference. What we're dealing with is methodology, process, prescription. And we are just as lawless and just as condemning of God's law and just as much usurping his role when we act contrary to his prescription as when we judge contrary to his standard. Because it's a package deal. And the same lawgiver has said both. Third, by judging outside of your jurisdiction. I think this is probably the least considered option. We live in a country where, praise God, freedom of speech is up there with some of our inalienable rights. And I was considering social media this week, and I honestly think it would be a fair way of describing Facebook and social media as a platform to elicit judgments. You won't believe. Tell us what you think. Can you believe they, or posting you know, the selfie thing, judge me, tell me how I'm doing. Humble brag, hashtag, blessed. And if you can't say amen, say ouch. <sighs> let, me, let me give you an example. The, if, who, who out of anyone in existence has more right to judge than the Lord Jesus Christ? All judgment, all authority has been given to him. And when Jesus was on earth, as he was heading to Jerusalem, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? The Lord of glory didn't consider it his prerogative to render a, could Jesus have rendered a righteous judgment in that matter? Of course he could, of course he could. What he asked is a different question, not do I know, can I decide, can I discern who's right and who's wrong? Of course he could. What he asked is, do I have any prerogative? Do I have any business? Is it my responsibility? His father sent him to do one thing and not another. The Lord of glory says, who made me a judge over you? Likewise, 1 Corinthians 5, 12, Paul rebuking a church that tolerates sin within says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? By default, I don't have jurisdiction with unbelievers. There may be cases where it's appropriate. So what I mean is, when you look on the newspaper, when you, when you look on the headline on the internet site, and it tells you about the most recent celebrity divorce, do I know biblically what to make of that? Could I size that up, assuming the facts are accurate? Could I? Yeah, of course I could. What business do I have? No, no, who made me a judge? And we see in James that these judgments come from arrogance and pride. That's what he says. These judgments come from arrogance and pride. And, and I think the reason is it's fun to play God, isn't it? There's a, there's a sense of sweetness and joy and pleasure and power in handing down verdicts. That's why we like to do it. So be very suspicious just that when, when you want to judge and ask yourself, what possible reason do I have 
to render a verdict as righteous as it may be on the Brad Pitt-Angelina Jolie split or whatever issue. Who may be a judge over them? And we mistake the fact that we can make a biblical judgment from whether we should make a biblical judgment. Now the Bible gives us jurisdiction, first and foremost over myself, the instruction in the Lord's Supper. Judge yourselves and you won't be judged. So, so who does God tell me to render biblical judgments on? First and foremost, me. Within my own family. My children, my wife, her to me as we deal with each other's sin. This church family, we take responsibility for each other's discipleship. Our last quarterly meeting, we told you of some unrepentant sin. There was a measure of judgment, but we were following the law's prescription. And so I believe it was right and righteous. But we don't have that responsibility for the church down the road. The elders have, have a responsibility corporately for the oversight and shepherding of the body. There, there are legitimate spheres. You as an employee or an employer may rightly have the jurisdiction of evaluating, judging another person. There can be plenty of good reasons. I'm just challenging you to think through them and not just assume that because you're capable of measuring something biblically, making sense of it biblically, that that then moves on to the next step that you ought to speak that judgment. You ought to render it. No, be very suspicious of the pleasure in sitting on your throne of judgment and handing down your verdicts. Fourth, by judging thoughts and motives. This is the other temptation. One of the, there are many, many differences between God and man. But one of the clear ones is seen in 1 Samuel 16. You'll remember the Lord had rejected Saul, first from the dynasty and then from the kingship itself, and he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse where he will find and anoint the, the man the Lord has found who is after his own heart. And Samuel shows up to the house of Jesse, and we read, when they came, the sons were trotted out one at a time. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely, the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What's one of the ways you're not like God? You look at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. What are you and I doing when we say, I bet I, I know what he was thinking. I know what he was thinking. I'm because I'm, I'm the Lord God. We're right back to there's only one lawgiver and judge and me. Now the Proverbs do say the purposes of a man's heart is like deep water and a man of understanding draws it out. A lot of what I do in pastoral ministry counseling is by asking questions, by listening, draw out a person's heart so that their motives can be revealed. It takes some skill to do that. You can talk to someone and they can tell you what they were thinking and they can tell you what they were desiring. And so we can get at with some skill and some labor the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. But what I can't do from across the room, look at someone act and speak and say, I know what I'm seeing. Just this week, I, I, I thought I had an idea of one thing and in talking to someone, it was something else. And we play God, we cast off the law. It gets back to, are we under authority? Or are we over the authority? Are we under the law or above the law? And so we act lawlessly we condemn god's law as sufficient when we judge motives we play god finally point v point five here by judging with insufficient facts by judging with insufficient facts deuteronomy 19:15 sets a precedent for evidence that is necessary to give a moral condemnation a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime 
or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And Jesus, when dealing with sin in the body, quotes and uses that exact same standard. Matthew 18, if he does not listen to you, take along one or two others that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You get that? So we cannot, as a church, condemn, even when it's in our jurisdiction, even when the Bible is defined it, without that level of evidence. What this means is passing on hearsay. Pastor Daniel, two weeks ago, thought about when we try to deceive. I'm suggesting there may be times you're not even trying to deceive. You just haven't fact-checked your sources. You're just passing on the internet article. You're just telling somebody what you heard. And if it involves speaking evil of somebody, you're judging contrary to the law. And we do this especially when we're inclined and predisposed to want to condemn the person already. Can you believe what Hillary did this time? And you pass it on. And you might be right. It might turn out that if you'd done the research, if you'd fact-checked it, it may have been right, and I'm telling you, you're wrong and condemned if you do it without doing that. You don't know that it's true, and you send it on anyway. This is, this is what the Bible calls gossip, slander, speaking evil. It's all ways of doing this contrary to what God's law says. Again, these are, I'm sure you could add to this list, but five ways that we can judge sin rightly in one sense, sizing it up, but in a manner contrary to how God tells us to do it. When we speak to each other instead of to the brother, when we share the prayer request, when we repeat matters that have been dealt with and covered and resolved, when we judge outside our jurisdiction, when we judge thoughts and motives, and we judge with insufficient facts. You know, one of the reasons I think we can do this when we don't have sufficient facts, is there's an inner part of us, and it's somewhat right, we don't want the guilty to get away with it. We of all people who know there is a living God who will judge all men with perfect righteousness need to be willing that someone in this life might get away with it. We need to be willing to trust there's a righteous God. I get how an atheist can think, if there's no justice here, there's no justice. And from an atheist point of view, Stalin got away with it. Pol Pot got away with it. We know better. So we need to be willing to let love hope all things, to give people the benefit of the doubt, to say we don't have enough evidence. We don't have those two or three witnesses to condemn. It's not our jurisdiction to condemn. And some people may, in this life, get away with it. But Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will reap. They're not going to get away with it. Have confidence in the judgment and justice of God. Stop thinking he needs your help to supplement the insufficiencies of his law, righteousness, and judgments. He doesn't. He just needs you to be obedient and faithful. Act as those under the law, under authority, not above it. Okay. Next, another implication. Speaking evil of others does great harm to the church. Notice that's the emphasis of the passage. We could have done the whole message about judging people in your heart, and there are passages that speak to that, but we've seen in the book of James his concern for the, the community of faith and those things that create strife in the community. Look back in James, the beginning of chapter three, where he speaks to the would-be teachers and warns them against it, and we learn that the tongue is capable of great evil. Look at... Verse five, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
So James has already looked at the, the spreading, contaminating, destructive effect of the tongue in the community. This is another example. Notice, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. He's looking at interpersonal speech in the church, first and foremost. This is another application of the wisdom from below. Look a little later in chapter three. The wisdom from below, verse 13, who is wise and understanding by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. Speaking evil of each other in the body produces that jealousy, that conflict. So in the flow and structure of James, this is another perfect illustration, getting all the way back to chapter one, where he said, if any man consider himself religious and does not bridle his own tongue, but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is in vain. When we adopt the world's wisdom that says it's okay to say these things, to speak these things, everyone else is doing it. When we don't control our tongue, when we speak evil of each other into the body, that's the way this fits into the book of James. And so I wanna consider two things. Speaking evil of others does great harm to the church. First, it is a hallmark of dead faith. Technically, James says it's a hallmark of false religion. I didn't put that as the blank because I didn't want you to think I was saying it's a hallmark of Mormonism or something. What James literally says, let's go take a look at it. Verse 26 of chapter one. Let, let this sink in. I, I submit to you that we don't properly esteem the gravity and the danger and the evil of gossip and slander and speaking evil of each other. I think James is not using hyperbole. I think he means to say what he means and means what he says. Chapter one, verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, a bridle controls, that means not speaking when you ought not to speak and speaking when you need to. And you need to go talk to that brother so you don't start hating him in your heart. If anyone doesn't do that, but deceives his own heart, what does he do? Deceives his own heart. This person's religion is worthless. An uncontrolled tongue is the hallmark of an unbeliever, a false, self-deceived believer. This person deceives their own heart. Which means if your tongue is uncontrolled and you insist and profess you're a Christian, James said you would do that. You said you'd be deceived. This is one of the hallmarks of idle people, gossips. I won't look at 1 Timothy 5. He's dealing with widows and keeping them busy so they don't become busybodies. But this is a great evil. Uh, I, I read something this week that I'll slightly twist, co-opt to my own use here, but imagine not drinking or smoking or fornicating, or watching rated R movies, or cussing, but being judged and damned by God to hell because you judged and spoke evil of those who do. If we condemn God's children apart from his law, we have only one model of such behavior in scripture. There's only one other person who does that. Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan stood at his right to accuse him. When we see Satan show up again in Revelation 12:10, listen to this. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come for the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. If you speak evil 
of each other in this body, contrary to God's law, there is only one other model for that behavior in Scripture, and it's the devil. It's his hallmark characteristic. He's the accuser of the brethren. Don't let that be your hallmark. And if it is, don't think all is well. Don't think all is well. Point two, it sows jealousy, conflict, and strife. So first and foremost, don't do it in the body because this is what dead people do. This is what worldlings do. Second, when we do this, contrary to God's instructions, like I said, at our last quarter, at our annual meeting, we spoke, announced sin to somebody, believed we're authorized by scripture to do that, but when we do that apart from biblical injunction authorization, we are sowing jealousy, conflict, and strife. Turn to Titus chapter three. I want to take a moment to consider how we ought to and ought not to speak. Here. Titus 3, 1. What, what should be our default speech? Yes, I know there are times where it's appropriate to speak in stronger terms. I know we have the examples of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and John the Baptist. You're not John the Baptist, though. Here's our default. This should be the baseline of our speech. This should be what generally happens. Yes, there may be exceptions. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Jump down to verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. When we speak evil of each other, you're creating that division. Rather than being a small sin and a little issue, this is the only issue of sin I'm aware of that gets fast-tracked in the discipline process. One or two warnings. If I read Matthew 18 properly, there's three steps. Titus 3.10, one, maybe two. So if you want to think of the priorities list, and then the reason is the damage it can do. One gossip, one slanderer, one person telling tales. And the Proverbs are full of this warning to us. Proverbs 26, 20 to 22, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. Mm. they go down into the inner parts of the body. I could read you a dozen other Proverbs. <sighs> My point up to now is to try to expose both how we can do this and how it's worse than we think. Let me, let me take what time we have left to try to get some application. I'm not here to just condemn, to, to make you feel guilty, but we might see we might turn, we might repent, we might put on proper speech, and so let's move to some additional applications. First, and after that caveat, my next point kind of seems contradicted. Things are worse than you think. <laughs> Things are worse than you think. And, and what, well, the reason I say that is this. James has a habit of taking something that we might be tempted to think, no, oh, that's not good. And then show us how 
By implication, it's this, and then by implication, it's this. We saw that with the tongue as he unpacks how bad a poorly controlled tongue is. We saw that with the wisdom from the world in this little escalation of its earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We saw that in chapter four, the same escalation. What causes quarrels? We had a little quarrel. What causes fights? Is it not this your passions that are at war within you? You desire, so do you not have, so you murder. Now we're all of a sudden we're talking about murder. Now James has a pattern of doing that and he does the same thing here. He could just talk about speaking evil. In Titus, that's what Paul does. Hey, stop speaking evil. Don't speak evil of anyone. James wants to make a, do you understand when you speak evil of a brother or judge a brother, you're also speaking evil of and judging the law and you're also usurping the role of God. Why does James do that? What, what does that imply? It implies he thinks his readers think too lightly of this issue. I think he's right. I think he's right. And so James, when James escalates like this, when he unpacks, says, whoa, this is, this is worse than you think. It's a bigger deal than you think. We need to understand he's telling us implicitly, and here's your blank, we are predisposed to minimize this sin. We're hardwired, predisposed to, and especially as Americans in the internet age, we are predisposed to minimize this sin. So, so be aware of that. Work against it. Be on the guard. And if you're convicted, take it seriously and beware the, the natural tendency. We all do this. Other people's sins and the things they struggle with, those are the bad things, and I struggle with little peccadilloes. James would have us think otherwise. We are predisposed to minimize this. So take that into account when you deal with your own heart. Second, realize what the root of this is. Why, what's going on in the heart of someone speaking evil against a brother in the body? It comes from a proud heart that enjoys playing God. It comes from a proud heart that enjoys playing God. And why do I say pride? You've determined that you're not under the law you have a better law. You have a more righteous standard. You have a higher wisdom, a better way. That's pride. That's self-confidence in the diabolical sense. It's coming from pride, and it's coming from the pleasure of being God. This gets back to the garden, right? You can be like God. And when I render these verdicts, I get a little taste being a king and a judge. It feels good. I mean, you know that. You've told someone off. You, whether it was justified or not, there's righteousness. There's a, a sense of pleasure, of accomplishment. If I told him, I gave him a piece of my mind. And that pleasure from acting as a judge with authority, from handing down verdicts, that's where it's coming from. If, if, you, if you're sitting here saying, yeah, I do this. I, I, I render unbiblical, unrighteous judgments. It's because of pride. And it's the pleasure of playing God. It also, we saw in Leviticus 19.3 here, comes from a hating heart. Back to Leviticus 19. What, think of what's on either side. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Don't bear a grudge. Don't get angry. It's on one side, go talk to them, love your brothers yourself. So don't gossip, don't slander, don't bear a grudge, don't get bitter, don't hate. Go talk to them, love your brothers yourself. When you don't go talk to them, but you talk about them, you're hating them. You're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're hating them. Understand that as well. And I, and I point this out, again, not just to like feel very, very bad, when my heart minimizes things, when I know I'm wrong, but I don't feel very wrong, when I, you, you know what this is like, you know you spoke a harsh word to someone, but man, they really deserved it. 
And you're talking to yourself, trying to counsel yourself to get convicted because you don't feel that convicted, but you know you shouldn't have said that. What do you do? You speak truth to yourself. So this afternoon over lunch, over the Thanksgiving table, you tell somebody about something you shouldn't, and afterwards you're like, oh man, I blew it. But you realize you don't really feel convicted. You don't really feel bad. You catch yourself saying, it's not that big of a deal. At least I'm not doing what they're doing. Then fight back by reminding of yourself, I did it because of pride and self-righteousness and because I want to play God. I did it because I hate them in my heart. As you speak what God says about it to yourself, that will well up the Spirit's work of conviction in your life. This is a practical step here. These are the truths we need to speak to ourselves that we might become convicted enough to repent and to change. Point B here, now I'll, I'll deal horizontally. Do not give such, a, such speech a hearing. Up to this point, I've only considered the one doing the talking. Now, I want you to understand that if, if you let others speak to you this way, if you let others speak evil of a brother or sister to you, you become guilty. Listen to Proverbs, Proverbs um, 17.4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. By the way, here's a tip. If you can faithfully a couple of times push back when someone tries to gossip to you, they'll stop. They will. When someone comes and tells me something that I don't think they have any business telling me, I usually ask either one of, one of two things. I'll usually say, why are you telling me this? Uh, uh, I just thought you should know. Why? Uh, you're the pastor. Yep. Have you talked to them yet? No. Then I don't need to know right now. But guess what? You need to go talk to them. No, it's not that big of a deal. It was big enough of a deal for you to tell me. Which means it's a big enough deal for you to go talk to them. Will you? Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna check back next week, and if you haven't talked to them, I'm gonna tell them they need to go talk to you. People stop gossiping to you, quick. But that's the, something like that is the responsibility you have when people speak evil of a brother or sister to you. Now maybe they've got a good reason. Why are you telling me this? They got a great reason. Because I've already tried talking to them. I'm trying to get somebody else, two or three others, to come talk to them as well. Oh, awesome, great. That sounds like what God commands. I'm all ears. But if you don't have any justification, you and I have a responsibility not to receive it, not to hear it. And, and part of that's to stop us from being poisoned. The, the words of a whisperer go down like delicious morsels to the innermost part. And something somebody tells you a decade ago can surface about somebody else. It's, it's pernicious. And those seeds sown can sprout years later. Don't give it a hearing. Finally, confess to those whom you have wronged. If, you, if, you, if you're sitting here this morning thinking this is a problem I have, here's a real practical way of dealing with this. Commit here and now. To turn, turn to 2 Corinthians 7, last passage. 2 Corinthians 7. This is my bread and butter repentance passage. Bread and butter passage. Seven hallmarks, traits of genuine repentance. If you catch yourself with this and you're not gaining in victory, if you keep thinking, oh man, I did it again, commit to go and righting the wrongs, which means confessing it to God, going and confessing it to the person you gossiped to, and potentially going and confessing to the person you gossiped about. I guarantee you, if you start doing that, you'll be changing your behavior. Because it'll sting way too much to do that repeatedly. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So first observation, just because you're sorry doesn't mean anything. Judas was really sorry, and so was Peter. Both men really sorry. 
There's a sorrow that leads to death. There's a sorrow that leads to life. The sorrow that leads to life produces, verse 10, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See what earnestness this godly grief, there's our first quality, has produced in you. Also what eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal. And the last one, ESV translates, punishment could be restitution, justice, avenging of wrong, making things right. If if I've shared with Dave something about someone he has no business knowing that's gonna make him think ill of them, I need to go back to Dave and say, Dave, I should not have told you that. I'm sorry, please, as best as you can, don't dwell on it, don't think about it, wipe it from your record if possible, I'm sorry. And I should go tell the person I just shared that secret piece of information, I just need to let you know, man. I don't know what I was, well, I know what I was thinking. I was thinking proud, self-righteous thoughts. And I was talking to Dave, and before I knew it, I told him about that thing that happened last week. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Commit to do that, and you'll start to gain victory over this, because you won't be doing that multiple times before you start to change. That's, that's what repentance bears out. James knows this is a rampant problem in the body. This is a rampant danger for us. Now you may think, okay, fine, I just won't judge anything. Well, you won't be able to do that, and that's still equally unfaithful. God does call us to give judgments to ourselves first, to our families. Again, all in the right way, all in the right way with the right spirit. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Yes, I need to do it a certain way, but you can't be faithful to God and escape judgments altogether. Rather, commit to be God's faithful bondservants, his slaves, his sons, his daughters, his citizens, under the law, and then judge rightly under the law as he prescribes. Anything else is rejecting the law as insufficient and making yourself God. And God is jealous. And as much as he loves us, he does not put up with us playing God and taking his place. Let's pray as we get ready to sing our closing song. Lord God, I ask that you would give us the grace to hear this rebuke, to not minimize or talk it away to understand you wound to heal us. You convict us that you might change us, that you have not revealed to us the evils of our sin to mock us, but to restore us. Help us to believe that. Help us to speak honestly about our sin, to speak righteously about our brothers and sisters, and to so be those under the royal law and not above it. In Jesus' name, amen.